And this morning we're going to consider the enemy defeated. The enemy defeated. Esther chapter 9. The day of the battle had finally arrived, the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar. On that day, uh, a decree had been drafted a year earlier by the wicked Prime Minister of the Persian Empire, Haman the Agagite. He authorised the death and destruction of all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the Medo-Persian Empire. Furthermore, it had been written, the decree had been written in the name of the king, King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's ring. And that made it irreversible and irrevocable. After Haman's death on the gallows, a second decree was written, which didn't cancel out the first decree. The battle was still on, on that day of the month, the 12th, the 13th day of the 12th month, Adar. That was still going ahead, but there was a second decree written which permitted the Jews to defend themselves by causing to perish all that would assault them. That second royal order was issued after Queen Esther demonstrating her love and her concern for her people, the Jews, fell down at the king's feet with tears in her eyes, pleading on their behalf. The outcome of the battle on the 13th day of the 12th month, that is the month Adar, was that in the royal city of Shushan, the Jews destroyed 500 men and Haman's 10 sons. In the rest of the kingdom, another 75,000 of those who sought the destruction of the Jews were killed. Furthermore, a third royal decree was issued, which resulted in another 300 men being killed by the Jews in Shushan the very next day. With regards to that third degree, decree, as it is written in Esther chapter 9, verses 12 through to 14, let's have a look at those verses again, for the third degree, sorry, decree, the third decree. And the king said unto Esther the queen, the Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the palace, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee. Or what is thy request further? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. And the king commanded it so to be done. And the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. The 19th century Anglican theologian Charles Ellicott was not at all sympathetic towards Queen Esther, who made the request to the king to extend the battle in 
the, in the royal city Shushan for another day and to hang Haman's ten dead sons on the gallows. Ellicott said, it seems impossible here to acquit Esther of simple bloodthirstiness. Before the slaughter of the 13th of Adar was actually over, it is obvious that the Jews were no longer in any danger. It was known that the sympathies of the court were entirely with the Jews and the officers of the king consequently took their part. I'm assuming that Ellicott had in mind verse 3 here. Let's have a look at that again, verse 3. And the rulers of the provinces and the lieutenants and the deputies and officers of the king helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. So a lot of the people that really mattered in the kingdom, they had sympathies with the Jews because they had a fear of Mordecai. We saw that the, uh, last week, in fact. Look at verse 17 in chapter 8. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day. That's They were rejoicing because of the second uh, edict which permitted them to defend themselves. So they, there was joy and much happiness. And also it says in verse 17 there, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews. So many of those pagans became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. So Ellicott, he's arguing, why extend the battle for another day? What was the point in all that? And he, he accuses Queen Esther of bloodthirstiness there. Ellicott went on to say, after one day's slaughter, in which in the capital alone 500 men were killed, we may be quite certain that the Jews were masters of the situation and therefore we do not hesitate to call Esther's fresh action needless butchery. Were anything needed to bring out the matter in its true light, it might be seen in the request that the sons of Haman might be hanged. They had already been killed. We see that in Esther chapter 9 and verse 10. Doubtless among the first. And Esther therefore asked for the dead bodies to be crucified. A gratuitous outrage on the dead. Because Esther was a person whom God made use of, as an agent for a great purpose, we are not called upon to tone down and explain away the black spots in our history. I read that, and needless to say, I've read quite a few commentaries, and I was left having a bit of a think, thinking what to make of it all. And so I thought I'd bring you that commentary from Mr. Ellicott. But I don't know what you think about it, as far as I'm concerned, though, and looking at all the other commentaries and, and looking what the Bible actually says, not what it doesn't say, but what the Bible says there. Mr. Ellicott's charge that Queen Esther's request for a day's extension of the battle in Shushan was inspired by bloodthirstiness and that it led to needless butchery was, to say the least, a tad harsh when you consider that the Bible doesn't go into any details 
of why she did what she did. As such, it's probably far more prudent to assume that Queen Esther received intelligence from her servants or intelligence from her adoptive father, Mordecai, that there remained enemy forces in Shushan that really did need to be put to death. But what about the hanging of Haman's ten sons who had already been killed? Was that not, as Mr. Ellicott said, a gratuitous outrage on the dead? In answer to that, it's probably significant that they were the sons of the very man who had conceived the plot to destroy all of the Jews in the first place. No doubt they were complicit and supportive of their father and the spectacle of them hanging upon the gallows would no doubt have served as a very sobering warning to others who had it in mind to do harm to the Jews. While we're on the subject here of hanging, we can consider the law of Moses. The law of Moses has something of immense importance to say about hanging. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, it is written, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and be and be he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Being hanged on a tree was a very public display of someone who had been cursed by God. The incarnate Son of God was himself hanged upon a tree and cursed by the law of God, even though he never once broke God's law. The Lord Jesus Christ was hanged upon a tree and he was cursed when he was nailed to a wooden cross and lifted up to die. When that happened, the Lord laid upon him, his only begotten son, the iniquity of all who trust in him, all throughout the ages who trust in him for the redemption, for redemption through his precious blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Just for a moment, forget about the wicked Haman who was hanged on gallows. Just for a moment, forget about his ten sons who were hanged upon gallows. What you need to understand, and what I want to focus your minds on here, as we, we, we just step out of this chapter for a moment, what I want you to understand very clearly, and make no mistake about, is that the wrath and the curse of God are upon all of you, not many here today, but upon all of you in here, who are not trusting in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your saviour from sin. I'll say that again, the, the curse and the wrath of God is upon you. The good news is that Jesus has taken the curse upon himself. As the Apostle Paul said, 
to the Christians in Galatia and indeed to all who trust in Jesus. Christ have redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. And the Apostle Peter said of Jesus, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree. The cross was a type of tree. That we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. So there you have it. The Lord Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, he became a curse when he was made a curse for all who trust in him. When your sins, dear Christian, were laid upon him at the cross. And you now should live unto righteousness by whose stripes, the stripes of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are healed. Let's have a look at verses 18 through to 22 in chapter 9. 18. But the Jews that were at Shushan assembled together on the thirteenth day thereof, and on the fourteenth thereof, and on the fifteenth day of the same same they rested, and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages that dwelt in the unwalled towns made the fourteenth day of the month Adar a day of gladness and feasting, and a good day, and of sending portions one to another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters unto all the Jews that were in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus, both nigh and far, to establish this among them, that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar and the fifteenth day of the same yearly, as the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month which was turned unto them from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, and of sending portions one to another, and gifts to the poor. The Jews were victorious over their enemies. Therefore they had good reason to rejoice and to celebrate However, one would be inclined to assume that at least some of the Jews didn't make it. They didn't rejoice, they didn't celebrate because they were killed in the battle. Just as the Jews of old had their battles, so too do Christians. If the life that you now live in the flesh, you live by faith of the Son of God who loved you and who gave himself for you, when he hanged upon the cross, bearing away your sins, you can be be sure that you will be having battles with the devil if you are someone who lives your born-again life for the glory of God. You will have battle with devils, uh, the devil. You will have battles with a wicked and Christ-hating world that does the lusts of its father, the devil. You'll see this in the workplace, at school. Everywhere you go, there will be people who will be out to get you because you are a Christian. Because you belong to Jesus. And you will have your daily battles with sin. 
Even so, never lose sight of the fact that your great God and Saviour Jesus Christ was victorious over sin, Satan and death when he was made a curse for you at the cross and by his resurrection from the dead. So, without exception, all you Christians can and you must rejoice and celebrate because of the heavenly hope that Jesus has secured for you. Rejoice, no matter how intense the daily battles are. And even though you will continue to have various battles right up until your death, until your faith is replaced by sight when you go to be with Jesus and behold your glory, uh, his glory rather, you will have battles right up until then. Let's have a look at verses 27 to 32. The Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing and according to their appointed time every year and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province and every city and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews nor memorial of them that perish from their seed, perish of them uh, from their seed. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew, wrote with all authority to confirm this second letter of Purim. And he sent the letters unto all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim in their times appointed, according as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the Queen had enjoined them, and as they had decreed for themselves, and for their seed and uh, the matters of the fastings and their cry. And the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. In these verses, we see a new annual feast being inaugurated, the Feast of Purim, where Purim is derived from the Persian word pur, meaning the lot. You may recall that it was by lot, casting lots, that the wicked Haman come up, came up with the 13th day of the month Adar for the destruction of all the Jews. And it was on that day also, and on that the Jews had, a year later, that the Jews had victory over their enemies and indeed the day after, the 14th day of the month Adar. They were victorious over all their enemies. To give you some idea what the feast entails, in addition to prayers and the reading of the book of Esther in synagogues, Purim includes gifts, food, giving to the needy and a large meal. When the book of Esther is read, the audience cheers when Mordecai's name is mentioned and it shouts when Haman's name is mentioned. The consumption of alcohol, apparently quite often excessive consumption of alcohol, dancing, parades and costumes are also often common at this festival. This is something the Jews still celebrate. The question is, 
Is it a feast that the church or individual Christians can or ought to participate in? I ask that question because I've known Christians who have celebrated various Old Testament feasts, such as the Passover feast, which is an annual remembrance of when the Lord delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt. I've seen Christians celebrate Passover. What they're celebrating is something that happened 1,500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. Ten plagues were inflicted by God throughout Egypt, the last of which was the death of all the firstborn. That last plague gave a brief period of time for the Israelites, perhaps two million of them, to make their exit from Egypt. As such, the meal that preceded their exit had to be something that could be prepared and eaten quickly. And so they ate unleavened bread in accordance with God's instructions. As part of that final meal before their deliverance, Israelite households killed a lamb and the blood was daubed on the doorposts and the lintels of their houses so that the angel of death would pass over them. Hence the word Passover. Again, the Jews celebrate this every year, Passover. They're celebrating when God delivered Israel out of captivity in Egypt. And the, uh, the, uh, the The, the Lord passed over the houses that had blood daubed on the doorposts and the lintels. Instructions are given in the Old Testament just as they are for Purim. You've got all the instructions for the Passover. For example, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 45 to 48, it is written, listen carefully to this now, this is instructions for the annual Passover feast. A foreigner and a hired servant shall not eat thereof. In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger shall sojourn with thee and will keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near and keep it and he shall be as one that is born in the land for no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof. That is uncircumcised male. When I read those verses and I see words such as all the congregation of Israel shall keep it and no uncircumcised person shall eat thereof It's obvious to me, maybe I've got it wrong, but it's obvious to me that the Passover feast was for the Jews of old, but not for me. Those Old Testament feasts such as Purim and Passover served as an annual reminder of God's faithfulness and his abundant grace towards the Jews of old. And most most of all, like a massive signpost, they point to God's deliverance of helpless and hopeless sinners in and through his only begotten Son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, then Jesus is your Passover. That's precisely what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Paul said, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. When the Jews celebrate Passover, they're looking back to 1,500 years before Jesus came into the world. That's all. And to when God graciously delivered them from captivity in Egypt. But that points to the cross about 2,000 years ago. It points ahead to what would happen at the cross. Christ, our Passover, is crucified, is sacrificed for all who trust in him. Therefore, dear Christian, the annual feasts of Purim and Passover served as as reminders of God's faithfulness in delivering the Jews of old from their enemies and they point to Jesus when it comes to the annual Passover feast. That has been superseded by the Lord's Supper which Jesus instituted at his final meal with his apostles before his crucifixion. And we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at this church every Sunday morning before the main service. It's a time of remembering Jesus until he comes again as we partake of bread and wine. Beyond that, dear Christian, there is no more Purim or any other feast to be celebrated. Instead, each new day is a new opportunity to rejoice and to celebrate And that is because you have been delivered from all of your sins. The greatest enemy of all. You have been saved by the grace of God and you have been granted eternal life through faith in your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he have anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. When Jesus said those words in a synagogue, he was quoting the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah and he was declaring himself to be the fulfilment of that prophecy. The fact is that Jesus came into the world to bring deliverance and to set at liberty those who are captive to sin. Therefore, trust in Jesus as your deliverer, as the one who who has fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf, the one who is the fulfilment of all those Old Testament feasts that we read of. I'm not saying ignore those feasts. They're there and when I read about those feasts, what I see is a big signpost pointing to the cross, to Jesus, my Saviour. Trust in Jesus as your deliverer. 
the one who has brought you deliverance from your sins by bearing them away in his own body at the cross. Amen.